All right, welcome back. This is part three in Thessalonians today. Um, I'm pretty sure after today, I'm only going to need one more session just to tie things up. And I was looking ahead for what comes next after this one. I started to get quite excited about that because it's, um, it's quite a gold mine, actually. Um, but before we get into that, we've got to tackle a rather hefty theological section today. But it's a really good one. So we've been on this journey so far in this series, um, looking at the relationship that Paul had built up with the church at Thessalonica, which at Thessalonica, which he had established last time. Um, I'm not going to do a full recap, but essentially we've worked, we've seen that he's really, really proud of them. He really, really loves them. Um, they've really grown. They're walking in their faith and so on. And last time we looked at the fact that he had to bring some correction where they'd had some problems, they'd been struggling with sin. Um, and so he was just sort of trying to set them straight again. This time, we're looking at some struggles they had with theology. Now, who of us, be honest, has at one time or another struggled with an area of theology? If you haven't, then I'm not overly sure if you've actually been studying the word. Because um, <laughs> I think it's part of the journey is actually to try and wrestle with it. And I think it's normal that we will do our best to understand something and we will think that we've got it and then God will come along and show us that's not quite right, actually. And we will need to correct things. And there might be times where there might be some of us that have actually ended up coming right round from one opinion that we had and God's changed us and actually showed us, no, actually... That was really quite wrong, the conclusions you'd come to there. Um, you know, we do try our best, don't we? But as humans, we're quite flawed, and we're very good at getting things a bit upside down or a bit back to front or in a bit of a twist, okay? Um, and a particularly common problem that I think that we have is we might know a little bit of something, and then we use our own logic to try and go from there to extrapolate or to fill in the gaps. And then before we know it, we've wandered into a bad area yeah many years ago I don't like saying that because it makes me old but when I was a student which was many years ago um, <laughs> it was summer and I was at home alone I was on the computer and my vision started to go a bit funny and I couldn't actually see in part of it um, now I know now that that was one of the first migraines I ever had and I don't tend to get a headache after. Certainly at that point in life, I didn't get any headache. I just had a funny visual thing, and then it would go, and then I'd think, what was that? Um, but at the time, it was one of the first ones that had happened. And I didn't know what was happening. But I was sat in front of a computer and the internet. Um, now, can you imagine what comes up if you start searching visual disturbances on Google? Yeah. <laughs> I started to get quite concerned I was having a stroke. Um, being clever, I didn't do anything about it either. I didn't call for help, just sat there and waited. And it went away. And it, like, obviously, thankfully, it wasn't a stroke. It was, it was a migraine. But when we've got a small piece of information and then we try and use our own brain sometimes to fill in the gaps, we can often end up uh, wrong, can't we, in some ways. And this, I think, is where we find the Thessalonians had got to here. Okay. 
Paul, as we know, had had to leave them in a bit of a hurry. He hadn't had as much time as he wanted. Probably some stuff that he wanted to teach them hadn't got chance. Um, and now they were left using some of their own assumptions and some of their own logic to answer their own questions. Yeah, they didn't even have Google. They just had their own brains in each other. Um, so with that in mind, I have titled today's message from the point of view of these very dear people, and I've called it, whatever you do, don't die. Okay? Whatever you do, don't die. All right, I'm going to split the passage from today into two sections. Um, it's all around the same topic of Jesus returning, but it comes from two different angles. So I want to look at the first bit first and then look at the second bit. Um, sort of separately from that. So I'm going to read the first bit. It's, the, it's chapter 4, starting at verse 13, and we go to the end of the chapter. Okay. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Comfort one another with these words. It's pretty good, isn't it? Now, I think the key to understanding the trouble the Thessalonians were having is in the first couple of verses. I want to just reread them, but from the New Living Translation, because I think it can help our understanding a little bit of the situation. So in that version, it says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Okay? So from what we can see here, the Thessalonians know that Jesus is coming back. Okay? I think they probably had a huge sense of hope from that. I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah? But I think they had this gap in their knowledge. They didn't know what happened to the people that died in the meantime. I can imagine Paul telling them that Jesus would come back and them getting very excited about it, but perhaps after he'd left, someone went, hold on a minute, what, what about people who die before he gets here? And so I think, I mean, I, obviously I don't know for absolute sure, but I think that they'd come to assume that if they died before Jesus came back, then they missed it. Yeah, tough luck, you left the table early and there's no pudding. It's kind of logical, isn't it? And if we're bound by earthly thinking, which, you know, without God we are, aren't we? Um, then actually it's the only conclusion you could probably draw out of this. Think of Prince Philip. Yeah, He died a few months before the Platinum Jubilee, didn't he? And he missed it. And as far as these guys could work out, if they died before Jesus came back, they missed it. Right? So try and imagine the pressure that that must bring, if that's your conclusion, or, or at least if that's your fear. Yeah, this is the only way you can get your head around it working. 
and you're living during a time of persecution. Imagine how that must feel. Whatever you do, don't die. But of course, people did die, didn't they? And then for those people that had lost someone that they loved, it must have been really quite difficult. It must have been a terrible blow to believe that that person had missed their chance. They had the hope of his return, yeah, and that was wonderful. But this gap in their knowledge, I think, was probably leading to a fair bit of heartache for them. So here comes Paul with really good news. You don't have to grieve like those people who don't have hope. Your hope doesn't die when your body does. Yeah, instead, they and us are told that those who've died in Christ, okay, and that is important, it is, this is a teaching for people who are saved. Those who have died in Christ are merely asleep. Now, this idea that dead people are only asleep, this has come up before in the Bible. Yeah? A while back in our Bible study, our Tea and Truth study, which you're welcome to sign up for if you happen to be free on Tuesday, um, <laughs> we looked at when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Yeah? Remember the story? When Jesus arrives at the house, everyone's mourning, and in comes Jesus and he says, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. And what did the people do? They laughed at him, right? Yeah, because she was dead, wasn't she? Yeah. You know, this society, I think, was probably a, quite a bit more acquainted with death than we are. We've come to sort of shield death kind of away from you, um, I mean, you know, most people don't probably want to die publicly, but um, I think back then people were much more familiar with what it looked like. Um, yeah, and I, I just think they knew they weren't mistaken. They knew it. Um, this, this is not like the time where Nick and I had a hamster and I thought it had died because it was completely still, completely motionless, lifeless, couldn't see it breathing or anything poked it, nothing happened. I was ready to bury that hamster. <laughs> and Nicola was like, no, no, I think it's just, a, I think it's asleep. I think it's hibernating. No, Nick, you, you're just clinging on to false hope. I need to bury the thing. And it, it, I was wrong. <laughs> it came back and it bit me. Um, it wasn't like that. This poor girl, she was dead. She had died. And here comes Jesus saying, she's not dead. She's only asleep. Yeah. And I sat there in our Bible study and this little thought came into my head and I instantly felt guilty just for thinking it. Okay. I don't know if we've experienced times like that. I had this thought come in and it, it went, sounds like Jesus is gaslighting them oh my gosh, I'm in so much trouble now just for thinking that. Yeah, that the Son of God sounds like he's gaslighting people, making them question the reality that they've just witnessed. He tells them they're wrong. But then it, it kind of gets worse because after then, after that, after he's raised her from the dead, he tries to swear them to secrecy, like he's covering up what he's done. And it really bothered me because... Like, I know the character of Jesus well enough to know that I'm going to be missing something here. This is not right. But I didn't have an answer 
for it and I was in this little conundrum about exactly what was going on here. How can he come in and say something that is blatantly not right? Okay, now we wrestled with it in our little group. Um, and, you know, it is okay to wrestle with the word. It's okay to ask difficult questions, to not know, because that's how we learn and that's how we grow. And we, and, and doing it with other people as well, particularly valuable. And we sat there and we worked it through and all of us knew that, you know, Jesus can't be gaslighting people. That's, that's not how God works. Um, but we were struggling still to actually explain properly in words that made us feel happy what was going on. So we decided to call in the big guns. I texted my mum. <laughs> and then just a few minutes later, I got this really great reply, really succinct. In fact, I went back through my messages, searched for it to go and find what it, exactly she wrote. And it was this. Dead for us is different to dead for Jesus slash God. Christians who have died are described as sleeping. In God's eyes, death is about spiritual death, whereas to us, it's bodily death. Her spirit was still alive. She nailed it, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, the girl's body was dead, yes, but her spirit was alive. Jesus sees beyond what we perceive as reality. Yeah, he sees right through to the truths of the spiritual realm. There's so much we could do with that, but I haven't time. I want to have a look at Lazarus as well, because we've got another example here of a dead person being referred to as being asleep. So if we turn to John 11 and start at verse 11, we can read some of the story, not all of it. Right. Then he said, this is Jesus, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping. Funny that. But Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. I don't ask because I don't know what he was going on about there. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, said Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Okay, as we know, Jesus goes on, brings Lazarus back from the dead. But what I want to focus on is just a few points from what we read, read there, because there's some really powerful and important things, isn't there? Firstly, we've again got Jesus referring to a dead person as being asleep. And the disciples don't get it either. They're, you know, they're just as bad as me. They take Jesus literally at his word. Um, and so he, it says he tells them plainly. 
yeah, which I think many of us as parents will relate to, that we say something and we don't say it completely directly and therefore kids get the wrong end of the stick and we have to rephrase it. No, this is what I meant. Yeah, I think Jesus is having a similar experience right there. Um, but what gets me in this passage is kind of the exchange he has with Martha, actually, because we tend to give Martha quite a hard time, don't we? We think about the time when she was in the kitchen fussing and Mary was sat at Jesus' feet. But actually, look at Martha's faith. Yeah, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Yeah, she already knew that Jesus could deal with his sickness. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, Jesus tells her Lazarus will rise again, and she knows, she shows that she knows that at the last day, actually, everyone else will rise. And that struck me, because that was, that's something that the Thessalonians had missed. But Martha knew it. Yeah, and then we've got this, this statement from Jesus, which is just so incredibly powerful, isn't it? I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Okay, if anyone in history was deserving of a mic drop moment, that I think was it. Yeah. If you've given your life to Christ, if you are in him, then even when your body dies, you carry on living. The true you never dies if you're in Christ. We've got these bodies, they're like, I don't know, earth suits or whatever you want to call them that we walk around in and some of them are letting us down a bit um, and some of us are not looking after them as well as we probably should. But when we die, when they die, the rest of us keeps on living in Christ. And this, I think, is why Jesus and Paul use the term asleep. Because when we're asleep in the natural, the body's kind of switched itself off, hasn't it, for a while. Some people might snore and stuff but essentially the body is it's switched off for a bit but underneath that the real you is still alive isn't it yeah so let's go back to Thessalonians again look at what Paul says in verse 13 to 14 now dear brothers and sisters we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope but since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. This is key. Yeah, Our grief doesn't need to be like that of people who have no hope. Okay, The Christians who have died that we've known, and we must all know a few, if not many, Okay, it's only their bodies that died. They are still very much alive in Christ right now. And yeah, we miss them. We miss them intensely. It's not like there's no grief. There is a very real grief, but it's not the same as grief that has no hope. It's grief mixed with hope because this is only a temporary state. And Jesus is going to reunite us all with him when he returns. Yeah, verses 15 to 17. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, 
we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Isn't that exciting? Like, I, I, I don't even think exciting is a big enough word, is it, to convey what's being promised there. Yeah, you don't have to desperately try to stay alive to make it to the second coming. In fact, if you die before then, you get to go first. <laughs> All of us will be reunited with Jesus in the air. And I kind of, I wonder if we're going to be there going, oh my gosh, look, it's Paul, it's Bill, it's Adua. All these dear people that we've lost over the years. I'm going to be like, there they are. I've been waiting. Yeah. And then the last statement, then we will be with the Lord forever. So I think it's no wonder that Paul then ties the section up by telling them to comfort each other with these words. This has got to be huge for them. Yeah, it's huge for all of us. But can you imagine if they've been living under that pressure of whatever you do, don't die, at the same time as mourning people who had died and they thought were going to miss out, can you imagine what it's like to then hear these words? This is what's promised for us in Christ. And I think if that was me, I probably would have cried. And even without having those wrong conclusions, this is amazing enough, isn't it, to bring tears, I think. It's when we, the more we sit and the more we dwell on it, the more incredible it is. But Paul's not done there. He carries on in chapter 5 to talk a little bit more about the second coming. And so this is our second section. And I want to read that bit now. I'm going to read this again from the NLT. So chapter 5, going up to verse 11. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armour of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. God died for us so that, whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up, just as you are already doing. Okay. The last section, I think, was talking about people who have died before Christ's return. But here, I think he is addressing those who are still alive. See, we know now from our vantage point that it's not any of those guys that he was writing to. And it might be us or it might not be. Um, but what's important is that all the while that we are still alive, we need to live as if it could be time right so what's interesting i think is the the distinction he draws between the night and the light yeah he uses quite a lot of metaphorical language and it's like he describes two camps of how people are existing 
I want to have a little brief look at both. If we're described in it as children of the light, then what does the night represent? That's living without Christ, isn't it? Yeah, if Jesus is the light of the world and you haven't accepted him, then you're living in darkness. Okay? And we are told that as Christians, we don't belong to the darkness. We don't belong to the night. So if we have a look at how the Lord's return is described, verse 2 says, the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. And then in verse 4, it says, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Okay, that's almost a contradiction, isn't it? Almost, not quite. But both things there are true. It can be unexpected and also not a surprise. Yeah? Because we are expecting it. We just don't know exactly when it will happen. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Okay, again, we've got the second coming as being likened to a thief in the night at a time we don't expect. But again, we're told, keep watch, be ready. Because okay, then we won't be taken by surprise. Because once it begins, there's no escape. Yeah, There's no way back. Paul describes it as like a woman going into labor. Um, I had a C-section, so I didn't experience that, and I'm not sad about it. Um, <laughs> But I'm pretty sure we can get our heads around the idea that once that started, that baby's coming, you can't escape it. You, you're going through it. Yeah. Um, and what I can gather from these two passages is if you're dead in Christ, you're not going to miss out. But if you're alive, there's still a danger of missing out. Yeah, because you could have metaphorically fallen asleep and not be ready. So are we alert? Are we alert for the second coming now? Are we clear-headed like it tells us to be? Do we live knowing that at any moment there could be this trumpet and a call, a shout from heaven? Or are we kind of spiritually snoozing, getting a bit drunk on things of the world? Now Paul talks very briefly about some armour. And we're probably quite familiar with the passage in Ephesians 6, the armour of God, that's very... Uh, well preached on I think certainly has been over my years um, but this little nugget this one gets missed probably um, so my first question that I wanted to know was um, is Paul consistent does he describe it the same way to the Ephesians as he does to the Thessalonians um, in our passage if we look at a little a more literal translation than I read before he references the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope salvation in Ephesians the breastplate is described as being of righteousness and the helmet is again described as the hope of salvation so we'll start with the easy one we'll start with the helmet because that's the same in both versions yeah the hope of our salvation the knowledge of our salvation works to protect our heads okay the head one of the biggest, most important places we have to protect, isn't it, in the natural? It's where our brain is. It's where our command center is, 
essentially. It's where we think and it's where we control everything that we do. In the natural, we wear helmets if we ride bikes, or we should do at least, um, or other dangerous activities, people working on building sites, whatever. We need to guard against any risk of damaging our ability to function properly. Yeah? And likewise, keeping our knowledge of our salvation front, center, all around our thinking helps to guard ourselves from dangers that might inhibit our ability to function properly as believers. We need to know we're saved, basically. We need to know. We need to know that we live in Christ. We need to know that we have this hope in him. Yeah, that protects our thinking. When we know that we have, when we know the hope we have in him through our salvation, it protects us from things that seek to damage that processing that we've got. Um, we can face troubles, we can face trials without them destroying us. We can see the rubbish in the world, but we can know that God saved us from that. We can know that even though we are sinners, we've been saved from the consequences of those sins through Jesus. And whatever accusations the enemy tries to level at us, they bounce off of that helmet of salvation because it's protecting our thoughts in command center. Okay, that's the easy one. The breastplate is described in Thessalonians as faith and love and to the Ephesians as righteousness. And I kind of wanted them to be the same thing. And I looked into them a bit more, but they're not, are they? No. Uh, righteousness, in a worldly sense, is linked to integrity. It's linked to being morally right. But in a biblical sense, it's still those things, but it's whether God sees us as those things. Are we morally right in the eyes of God? And, well, we know that the only way we can be that is through Christ. Yeah. So I want to take all three of these things, the righteousness, the faith, and the love, and look at them all as being part of this breastplate. And it protects our heart, doesn't it? Yeah, we know the head's important, but we also know the heart is very important to protect. Yeah, very literally speaking, it's keeping us alive. And it's distributing things around our bodies. But metaphorically, the heart is the center of our being, isn't it? It's, it's kind of the core of who we are, metaphorically, in a way that we don't really consider when we think about our brain. It's the center of our emotional being. So when we consider our righteousness in Christ, we can use that knowledge to protect our hearts from damage know that we have integrity before God but only because of Jesus and knowing that it's only because of him that should keep us soft that should keep us open before him it should keep us humble and again protect us from accusations the enemy might wish to make okay but what about the faith and the love this is the bit that Paul's talking about in our passage um there are two things that should strengthen us as we seek to remain alert and clear-headed for the second coming because what's interesting i think is these things these two particular things they're active things not passive things yeah to live by faith and to live in love requires something of us when we're not meant to just be sitting on our bums now watching the clouds waiting for a shout or a trumpet um and getting excited yeah we can get excited but um, no, part of what actually keeps us strong and keeps us walking 
um, in the right way is putting our faith and putting our love into action. Because when we do that, we help bring God into situations where perhaps otherwise he might have not been able to move so easily. Our faith and our love enable God to be active among people. And what happens when we see God move? What does that do for us? It strengthens us, right? Yeah, it encourages us. It strengthens our heart and our emotions. Yeah, when I've seen God answer prayers or seen him show himself in some way in my life or the lives of those around me, like it gives me a kind of a buzz almost, like a thrill. It makes me come alive. And that, I think, is part of our protection. It involves being active, not just passive. Keeping alert, not slipping into this state of being spiritually asleep like the rest of the world. Okay, Paul then brings us back to his main point in verse 9 and 10. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Because what were we talking about? Oh yeah, the hope of our salvation, right? Well, I've kind of deviated briefly, but stay alert for the second coming, because the whole point is, that God's plan is to save us from anger and instead to really receive eternal salvation. That's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? That's, that's the whole crux of the gospel. And the complete gospel, as the Thessalonians needed to hear it, includes the fact that whether we're alive at Christ's coming or whether we've already died in our body, he's coming to get us. Yeah, he's coming to get us. He's coming to take us home to be with him and Paul then rounds off that section the same way as he did the previous one by saying so encourage each other build each other up just as you're already doing now it's my hope that this message has encouraged you this morning and built you up um, it certainly did for me in the preparing of it I don't think you can spend any time studying into the core gospel message without you know being quite excited really and quite thankful um, but as a body let's keep encouraging each other and encourage yourself even when we think about people we've lost brothers and sisters that we dearly miss know that to Jesus they're only asleep yeah we might grieve for the hole that's been left here on earth but we don't have to grieve like the other people who have no hope because this is a temporary state being without them is a temporary state, and we will all be together again. And if anything, the risks, the greatest risks, are to us who are still alive, because we need to keep alert. Yeah, we need to be in faith and in love, knowing that he could come back at any time, any minute. It could be on our way home from here. It could be while we're eating lunch. It might be next week. We just don't know, and we have to live knowing that we don't know, but it could be any time. We have to be ready. On that note, with all of the weight of those things to think about, I think I need a cup of tea. <laughs> so I want to close in prayer, but if, um, if anyone here wants prayer, then do feel free to talk to myself, anyone you've seen at the front, um, or if you've come with someone, talk to them. Um, if you know that you're not actually living in Christ, but you would like to, then again, find someone 
to talk to them. We'll be more than happy to lead you in that. So let's pray. Father God, we can so easily get sidetracked as Christians onto some really peripheral issues, but I want to thank you for the core of the gospel message, the core of why you came and what you did for us, what you have brought, despite the fact that we don't actually deserve any of it, that your grace means that we will never truly die. That whatever we live through on this earth, we have the hope of glory. We have the hope of heaven afterwards, the hope of your, other, your second coming, Father, and bringing us all together to live with you in perfection. Father, I want to thank you for various people that have gone before us. We'll all know several people. I want to thank you. I want to ask that you would comfort people who still live through the grief of not being with them at the moment. And I pray that you would comfort them with knowing that this is temporary. And we will see those people again. And we will hug them again. And we will be together with you forever. As we go from here this morning, I pray that you would help us to stay alert. You would help us to live in a way that we know that you could appear at any moment. Let us not get sleepy, God, but let us know you could come any moment. There could be a shout. And then from that point on, there's no escape. But what a glorious thing we're going to be brought together in. In Jesus' name, amen.